What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back. Welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase relatable role models and their journey in work and life, including their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and much, much more to help you achieve your potential, become your best self, and continue to be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Viri Tagawal, and let's get started. Today, in this episode 97, I'm speaking with Lauren Kaplan. Learn about her sunrise in Queensland, with dad being a banker, and mum working at Ansett to achieve her desire of sending Lauren and her sisters to private school. And Lauren candidly shares the private school experience and how it changed the family dynamic, and also realizing success tends to be more about happiness over status. We cover a lot, and Lauren shares fantastic insights about how she discovered and built a career merging creativity, community, and impact with the business world, working with global thought leaders like Rachel Botsman on building the sharing economy and collaborative consumption, to then how she was the first person in a community and platform role in VC at ReInventure in Australia. I asked Lauren about how she manages to stay ahead of the curve and many trends, her move to Noosa in 2020, what people get wrong about relationship building, and how can Australia cultivate a successful woman-led VC fund. It's time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Lauren Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Vidit. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm pumped to have you on. There's so many people that have given me so many insights about you, so this should be really <laughs> fun. So let's start with some fun facts. Where were you born and where do you live now? So I was born in Cairns in northern Queensland. Uh, my parents lived there for a brief moment. Dad well, dad worked in a bank up there uh, and before we came back to Brisbane when I was about one. Uh, and right now I live in Noosa, Queensland. So um, have been to Sydney in between but ultimately haven't strayed too far afield. Mm, and what was your first job and what do you do now? So my first job, a uh, proud achievement, I was a, an ice cream scooper extraordinaire at Baskin <laughs> Robbins uh, yeah. on Racecourse Road uh, and yeah, developed my, my love of and uh, palate for ice cream flavours all the way back then. <laughs> mm, I feel like we've all done one of those jobs, right? And yeah. <laughs> how would you describe the many things you do now? Okay, so right now is an interesting time. Uh, you're finding me between roles, uh, which is a, a luxury, I guess, to have a little bit of time off uh, between the last chapter and the next one. So I'm currently taking a few weeks um, after having finished a role at Startmate, where I was principal for two years, uh, and I'm looking ahead to uh, joining the AWS team in the startup ecosystem manager role in just a couple of weeks' time. But right now, I'm really just enjoying that luxury of spending some good time with the kids. I have two kids, Louie, who's five, and Vera, who's two and a half, and uh, kind of taking my time to to really decompress and, and prep for the next chapter. Mm, very cool. And Lauren, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer in your life who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? So I've actually had a bit of a think about this because I think it's a fantastic question and I've heard you ask previous guests and there are lots of people in my life that I'm really just so grateful to be around and to get to to connect with and work with. But the one that I wanted to call out who I think is just an incredible ecosystem player um, and and such somebody deserving of a lot of recognition is actually Kate Dinan mm. um, from Character and Distinction. So I met Kate a long time ago, almost at the the start of my 
Australian startup ecosystem journey. I think she just epitomizes sophistication, class. Uh, she's such an incredible, she's, you know, a master of her craft. Uh, and yeah, I just, I just really uh, admire her for everything she's achieved and the role she plays in the ecosystem. Yeah, I could not agree more. She's been in the podcast and she's been an oh, unofficial awesome. source of guests that she's yeah. supplied a lot of fantastic guests that I've had on the show. Absolutely. So, she knows so, them all. <laughs> yeah, she, she does. And that's to your point about class, right? The way she yeah. builds relationships and the way you build relationships as well is super refreshing and it's not transactional, which we can touch on in terms of your exposure and everyone I mentioned when people hear your name they're like yeah we've met Lauren in some capacity so that's a unique <laughs> trait that you've got um, let's zoom out Lauren and go back to your sunrise you mentioned Queensland and, and growing up there tell me about the influence of family what are your early memories growing up in Queensland so I grew up at the time um you know, in Brisbane, what would have been considered, I guess, the outer suburbs of Brisbane. They're almost kind of halfway in inner suburbs of Brisbane these days because Brisbane, that footprint has just grown so much. But on the northern side of Brisbane, um, dad worked in a bank um, and, you know, mum, we had, I have two sisters, so mum spent most of her time looking after us in those early years. Uh, it was a pretty humble and, um, you know, family-centric upbringing everyone was uh close you know close to our grandparents they lived around the corner uh, a lot of that that family values was instilled really early on uh but I guess the the kind of temperature of my childhood changed really uh around sort of uh, five, uh grade five ten years old mum had a real aspiration to send us to a, a great school me and my mm. sisters um there was one that she'd you know always wanted to attend herself as she was growing up and I think that that desire um, really motivated her. So she ended up taking a, um, a role at ANSET. So I'm working for the airline um, in order to kind of help set that possibility up for us, um, for my sisters and I to attend that, that school. Um, I say the temperature changed because ultimately, you know, with all of those things comes, you know, opportunities and, and challenges. And, you know, that, that kind of shift work experience for mum was a really difficult one. I think that really burnt her out kind of emotionally, physically. Um, it it changed my parents' relationship. They ultimately didn't stay together. Um, it, it was a bit of a tumultuous period through most of my high school um, and beyond, to be honest. Um, and so I guess I've always recognised the sacrifices that were made or the, um, the things that my parents both wanted to provide for us. And obviously my dad was a big part in that as well. I only mentioned mum because the, the, the lifestyle change affected her more specifically. Um, and I think that sacrifice of that awareness has just always motivated me to make sure that I'm doing the things that I think my parents want me to be doing. And that isn't necessarily success um, from a you know status perspective. It's this kind of more rounded perspective of you know am I happy healthy and doing things that that are really fulfilling me and and you know potentially making an impact I think the impact thing comes more from my own drivers uh, but I know that's the stuff that makes my parents proud more so than anything else um, yeah so that that's kind of shaped how I think about the work that I've pursued or the the learning that I've optimized for um, and also why family is really important to me and why paying it back to my parents through my own happiness is is a key driver as well. Yeah, I'm glad you share that because I want to get to 
success when you were 18 and, and sort of yeah. even now and you've achieved a lot. So we will touch on that. I understand as part of your mum's story, was she 20 when you were born? Is that, is that Yeah, right? so mum, mum was a really young parent. And I think at the time that wasn't unusual, but I mm. do think, you know, as a, you know, so she's about to, she's turning 60 next week and I'm mm. 38. So yeah, she was 22 when I was ultimately born. Uh, and to be this age now realizing mum had, you know, three kids, under the age of, you know, 10, 12, whatever it is, and how much I've been able to do even before I had Louis, you know, I had Louis five years ago um, at 33. That's, you know, 11, 12 years more than mum got mm. for herself to, to really come into her own. And even in the last, you know, 10 years specifically, how impactful that time has been for me to really shape the person that I am. Um, so, you know, I also have this kind of mother-daughter um, entanglement, you know, I, I want mum to be able to experience that in some way, um, either through me or, you know, to support her to have that that chapter herself as well to really, you know, understand what makes her happy, what makes her tick um, and to, to feel empowered and, and strong and all those things that I think a whole generation of women definitely missed out on that chapter, depending on, you know, where you were born, what your circumstances were, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's really important to me. I completely resonated. My mum was 19 when I was born, so yeah. one year younger than your mum, and yeah. I'm very close with my mum. And yes. it's very similar to that at that age in the world. That was common, and, and yeah. it was not questioned, whereas now things are different. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't I didn't appreciate it. As I've gotten older, I appreciate it more, and I can actually connect with mum more, and she's yes. still got energy and still she's still got an ability to spend yeah. time, which is, which is really important, whereas if she was 18 totally. or 90 years old, maybe that would have been different. That's, that's that's right. There's so many good things to come of that, um, you know, in terms of the proximity of age as as you get older. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it takes its toll in different different ways. I wonder on the point about moving into private school. In terms of, did you recognize the change at that age? Because I, I I was similar to your parents. My parents sent me and my younger brother to private school, and I don't know if it made any difference to who I became. But I think in the moment that weight on your shoulders of your parents saying look we're putting so much money into it we're making sacrifices yeah. and and parents want to send their kids to the right school and, and the best yeah. school but in hindsight I often wonder I'm like would I send my kids to private school and I don't know but what are your yeah. reflections on private school did that help you access opportunities that you couldn't before it's a it's a really great question I feel like we could spend even so much time <laughs> unpacking how I feel about all this I think you know, ultimately that awareness of the sacrifice was apparent to me from the get-go, you know, so for 11 years old, noticing the family tensions, feeling, you know, there was probably disagreement between my parents as to as to the fact that it was a priority um, and knowing how much my performance or enjoyment of or, um, you know, taking what was on offer to its fullest was was the sign that I was appreciative and grateful for that experience and, you know, Part of that also was about me, you know, trying to get an academic scholarship to reduce the actual cost of it, um, you know, to try to alleviate the pressure. That was really my motivation for all that. So I think all of those I, and, and the other part that happened, of course, is that we were suddenly in a community of people that were fundamentally different to us in mm. terms of their upbringing, their wealth, um, their style, culture, the whole lot. So while it was such a, a big passion um or you know a, a determination of my family's to send us there we were suddenly odd ones out in so many ways and I remember even watching mum grapple with that where the mums were you know generally a little bit older actually in that environment mm. and you know 
had had much more money at their disposal and the imposter syndrome that then kind of shadowed mum's experience of even even sending us there um you know definitely a mixed mixed experience did it create the opportunities for me um you know funnily enough I think if I'd been optimizing for a more traditional career of banker lawyer doctor you know whatever pick pick your um professional service I think it would have um Mm. part of me probably railed against the fact that it should like the old, you know, the old school, old girls, old boy, boys connections really don't sit right with me. So funnily mm. enough, I've never lent into that. And still to date in my career, there's probably, I could count on one hand, the number of people from my school circles that I've bumped into in the startup mm. ecosystem as well. So, um, so I'd say no, but I'm sure the answer is also yes as well, because it has fundamentally made me who I am for sure. It, it probably it reminds me of something that a lot of people that I spoke to leading up to this mentioned about your creativity and they use the word earthy mm-hmm. and nature. Was that something you were that personality even growing up back to some of your points there where you had that creative angle and mm. people and nature, whereas other people wanted to sit in an office and have a desk yeah. and a cubicle? So I think the nature part is secondary. I think it has evolved. And in fact, I was probably like a don't get dirty kind of kid. I, I would sit <laughs> in the corner and just read voraciously whatever anyone would throw at me. Um, and the creativity was always more writing focused. Um, I guess that that it became clear that that was my strength from a really early age. Um, you know, early reader, loved to create stories, then write stories, Um and have an, I have an appreciation for what creativity brings. Um, there was huge chunks of time in between that that I didn't see myself as creative, like bad art student. Bad, I mean, I, I studied um, music for a long time as well. I was playing the violin when I was five years old and probably, again, mm. one of those things that I could have really capitalised on. Um, but the practice that comes along with creativity was always a bit of an allergy for me uh, and it's something that I've really tried to work on in later life um and as for the the nature side of things or the kind of sustainability um thread or the you know the impact on the world we live in i think that's become more important to me over time you know we live in such a precarious fragile um world and i don't feel like i have a natural connection to do it but i really see the importance of learning about that whole you know how to cultivate your own food and and all of those practices that we've become so disconnected from. And I think that time away from screen and, you know, touching grass, as the mm-hmm. DJs will say, is a really <laughs> fundamental part of how I want to see my my life evolve, for sure. You you mentioned earlier about not being attracted to status and, and not being mm-hmm. part of that old boys, old girls club. What what was success at age eighteen? Like, what would have fulfilled you? And obviously, benefit of hindsight now. But what would have fulfilled mm. you at age eighteen? Because you are very ambitious. Were you always ambitious? And did you always have big mm. dreams? Yeah, I think the other thing that I would say about myself is sometimes I'm just a bit too early or or ahead on things. So I've accelerated my ambition in certain areas, and maybe never fully um, been able to to enjoy what comes of that. Um, the, the reflection that I'm having here is I was re- I really wanted to go overseas. And I think in early to late high school, that was what success actually looked like, a global career or a glo- you know global opportunities. Um, but I accelerated that by focusing on 
doing an exchange um, at the age of 15 to France. And I think part of that was also a reflection on me wanting to carve out some independence from family life and home life. Um, but I really focused on having that international experience at that age. Um, and it was an incredible experience, but it was also really difficult. And I think I suffered from homesickness and all the things you would expect, um, you know, at, at the age of 15 to experience living in cold, dark, northern France through winter um, was probably actually, uh, on reflection, a challenge to, to take on. But then when it came to finishing school and the thing that I thought I would always do, which is that rite of passage of travel and backpacking and all that sort of stuff, sort of had been deprioritized by that earlier experience. And I just found myself working um, and studying. Um, so I think I, I had been optimizing for that. and I never really saw that particular goal through. Um, so when I did leave school, I, I guess success was was actually just about being able to study and spend time on the topics that interested me. So I mentioned before, I didn't want to do the doctor, banker, lawyer, business person path. I wanted to be, to have creativity as a profession. So I studied a creative industries degree from QUT, which was theatre studies, journalism, creative writing, um, and a bit of French in the mix. And that, you know, added up to a sum total of nothing particularly. Um, but success was that I could spend three years doing that and see what came out the other side. Uh, and I think I've probably made most of my career decisions in the same way um, since then. And and maybe as part of that, you, you mentioned earlier being ahead on many things. That's That's been a common trait that people have mentioned to me, and I'll come to that. And Web3 is a good mm. example of that. And mm. and even a lot of your success at Startmate was was down to that. And we definitely want to celebrate some of your, some of your things there. But if we talk about your early career and as we go into magic moments on this conversation and back to creativity and community, how did you carve out a career in that space? Like particularly, as you mentioned, in those early 2000s, seven eights mm. nines tens it's not the buzzword it is today so yeah. what did that process look like to one discover that there could be a job or creating your own job as you've done many times in your career um, mm. can you take us inside that time yes so when I realized that my degree didn't create a very linear path and that it was going to be on me to determine what those tools could ultimately result in. Um, you know, I, ha I had a few jobs in Brisbane, um, one of which was for a major arts festival that happened once a year. Uh, but it was actually when I moved to Sydney in 2008 that the wheels really started turning. I guess the universe of opportunity in Sydney was, was always um, bigger. Uh, I was working for an architectural firm, so not the kind of immediate um, jump, but it was the first time I guess my role was called special projects, um, yeah. and it was reporting directly to the national director of this 300-person architectural firm, um, and it was really to do whatever he thought was um, important for team culture, for communication, for their broader kind of marketing presence. Um, and you know, creativity is is inherent in that profession. Um, they're actually architects are actually brilliant people almost, uh, you know, wasted in in that particular field because I've got skills that could do so much more. Um, but yeah, that that special projects role meant that my role was always being defined on the fly. Um, it changed in nature and scope and levels of responsibility over a couple, over the years that I was there. Uh, but through that time, I guess the parallel track was me immersing myself in what we would now call social innovation or social impact. Um, I mentioned when we chatted originally, you know, the idea of business was something that I was almost against. Um, you know, I thought 
capitalism was bad and, you know, mm. impact was good and those two things could never meet in the middle. Um, and the social innovation world that was really emerging in the early thousands showed me how clever entrepreneurship and business-minded strategy um, could actually result in incredible impact and it may just well be sustainable or it could be sustainable in the process. It didn't always have to be bleeding heart non-profit level impact um, that is hugely unsustainable. So I um, ended up studying a graduate certificate of um, non-profit business again. So like don't study business, study the, the ones that don't make money. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, I really enjoyed the ethical considerations, the kind of um, how you manage non-profit or impact businesses, which is so distinct from, you know, corporate or traditional business. Um, and I got involved in a couple of organizations that were more on that social entrepreneurship pathway than pure startups. But it was through this process that I met Rachel Botsman, who wrote mm. a book um, in 2010 about the sharing economy, what we call the sharing economy now. And for me, when I met Rachel, the sharing economy was the ultimate merging of those two kind of ideologies that were competing in my brain. Can we make money and have incredible impact? Can it be smart and sexy and sustainable and, and high tech? Um, you know, all of those things just lit me up. And I was so captivated by the potential of the sharing economy to really shift the way we live. I don't think it's fulfilled its potential, but it's certainly shaped a lot of things about our lives that we weren't doing, you know, in 2010. Um, so I spent five years really immersed in all of that. Um, but again, when I mentioned the too early thing, I think the wave of all of that really occurred in you know, 2013, 14, 15. Um, by 2015, I was already shifting over to the next thing, which was that idea of getting more embedded in the venture capital space, um, which which was starting to, to really grow in Australia. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of potted history of how I ended up in the startup sector, I guess. Mm, I'd love to double click on your time with Rachel and then we can get yeah. into venture capital and some of the things there because I think there's a lot of aspects of that that perhaps listeners are not as aware of your time. And mm. I think one is just the term collaborative consumption. And, mm. and uh, in my research, I understand you played a big role in that. I think you mentioned mm. when you traveled across yeah. the world and you're with Rachel really working really closely. What were kind of yeah. two or three of the key learnings you had from that point or if you talk broadly to the audience listening in today mm. that people might might have a perception but when you did that time mm. you're like no perception and reality actually is a little bit different it's a great question and I reflect so much on this chapter of my life because it was so formative um, but it was one of those situations where you're you're so in it that you're almost not even aware of what you're in um, you know I was just so passionate and so focused on, um, you know, the, the meta objective, I guess, was to socialize the idea of collaborative consumption um, as broadly as possible globally to give the idea significance and um, credibility to then support all of these founders that were emerging, building in that same way. It's really funny to me watching the way the Web3 kind of community is growing because it's more of like a leaderless example of, of this occurring. Mm. And now I can see more clearly how these trends roll on year in, year out. Sometimes there's figureheads, sometimes they're not. But with the collaborative consumption movement, Rachel was certainly a figurehead who stitched together these ideas. We we might see, um, you know, she was, she was a thought leader at the time. And again, even that process is infinitely easier today um, than it was in, in 2010. Um, you've got thought leaders left, right and centre with their sub stacks and their 
um, you know, Instagrams and their TikToks, but we were inventing it all from the ground up. We were um, running interview series with, you know, the likes of um, Brian at Airbnb and John at, at Zimride, now called Lyft, um, Shelby, Relay Rides, all of the, all of the main characters of, of that time were doing their first interviews um, with us, you know, there wasn't even really podcasting um, back then. It was literally just a written a written interview on the website. Um, and the other part of that role was literally cataloging the hundreds, almost thousands of examples of collaborative consumption emerging around the world. So you mentioned the travel, um, and and that was primarily community building and activation, but also then tapping into the fact that these global audiences were hungry to understand this trend, and that was maybe more from a a corporate or a, um, even a government perspective, you know, how should we be thinking about regulating? How should we be thinking about incumbent businesses adapting? Um, that became the, the work in the later years of, of my time with Rachel. But the bit that I loved the best was the entrepreneurial side, meeting these founders um, in all these different geographies. Um, I built a community of curators who were essentially spotting the local examples. They would publicize and, and kind of celebrate the local examples. So we weren't just being drowned out by those US success stories, which are obviously still the big names today. Um, so yeah, we, it was it was a lot of hard work that was very invisible in, in lots of different ways. And I do see um, the pattern and the formula that we followed has become so widespread and it's infinitely easier to, to do those things today. Um, I guess it was like the manual version <laughs> before things became more automated. Um, but it was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, sometimes I just wish that I'd been able to, um, you know, the benefit of hindsight is did I fully grasp it and, um, you know, make the most of what it could have been. Um, I felt very much just caught in the, the tidal wave of, of what was going on. Yeah. And, and, probably as part of it like that was a decade ago a bit over a decade mm. ago and then you've yeah you've done that work but you're now as you said involved in the different aspects and we'll get to that in a second but if you look back in reflection and i know one thing you're very passionate about is sort of education in the business community mm. about the benefit of community and, and creativity mm. we had your good friend joel Connolly on the podcast recently yeah. and he talked about some of these things and and perhaps some of the gaps that are there in, in some of the education around that when you look back a decade on now to your time then are there any parts of the work you did or what you've learned in the decade since that you feel business leaders in the startup ecosystem or innovation don't quite grasp? Like if you had a perfect world, how would you bring those two worlds closer, capital and innovation yeah. and impact? I think the biggest tension for me has always been the the kind of constraints to growth and an objective I had or, a, or a, a way that I thought that ecosystem would go was that there would be, um, you know, localised competitors who would reach a certain scale that would then collaborate with each other. This idea of um, replicating and connecting rather than just scaling globally. Um, and yeah. certainly that's not the way it went. Uh, but I think that those true community-based businesses need to understand where those limits to growth are because it's such a fine line between um, genuine community and, and um, mutual benefit and actually having communities being taken advantage of um, for, for profit that they ultimately don't get to see. I mean, Airbnb's moves were interesting um, pre-IPO to, to make sure that their most active hosts were rewarded with some kind of stock um, considerations. I think that is more of the flavour of what we should be seeing. I think that's where Web3 type businesses and, and DAO structures 
can can actually better reward community contribution. Um, so it's not really an answer to your question, but it's it's more of a frustration that I have with the growth at all costs mindset that really is interlinked with um, you know venture capital particularly, and probably part of my motivation for getting exposed to the world of venture capital was to understand what it looked like on the inside, to understand what those levers are, or where are the more appropriate kind of um, models for capital that encourage the right kind of scale um, and, you know, right size the company for the opportunity that exists. I appreciate my question is really broad, so there's no <laughs> specific answer that you can go one, two, three. So, but that is interesting insight. And I guess that probably maybe started your relationship with reinventure and, and, and Simon Kant and the team there, and mm. they are a full prop, for-profit business and, yeah. and sit under a bank in, mm. in a big capacity. And tell us about your role there. Cause I, I mean, I spoke to Simon leading up to this and he, mm. he mentioned the best of his knowledge. That was the first sort of community platform role in VC in Australia and perhaps yeah. in a big part of the world outside the U S how did you sort of, I like asking people about how you go into a role and sort of set mm. yourself up for success in the first three, six months. But yep. when the role's a new role and you've come from a field where you maybe had more autonomy because you're working with Rachel, you're traveling and you had a big sort of mandate, how did you go into a structured organization and a new role and set yourself up for success? I, I think Simon would laugh if he if he heard you call reinvention structured. <laughs> Okay. I don't know. Um, no, perception. I, I, Maybe the perception you know, is. I'm just, yeah. I'm just teasing. It's, yeah. um, <laughs> it, it was a really interesting uh, time. So, so what I had noticed at the tail end of working on the collaborative consumption movement, I had spent a bit more time with um, VC funds through that time, which is where my curiosity came from. I had friends who had gone from, um, uh, you know, collaborative economy side businesses into the VC space and that's where this idea of venture venture capital community or platform roles came from uh, and so I had seen directly um, those friends make that transition I started to reach out to a few of them and gradually became more aware that there was a community in and of itself growing in this space so there was probably about 30 um, VC platform community people globally particularly in the US and in Europe. So there was already kind of a, a big movement in Europe too. Um, and for me, it felt like I wanted to learn about the world of venture capital. I wanted to be surrounded by high growth startups. Um, but what the, the skills that I had to bring were this kind of knowledge of community, the, the communications, the events background. Uh, so I started to get to know the local venture ecosystem. Um, you know, at the time it was literally Airtree, um, Air SquarePeg and Sorry, yeah, Airtree, SquarePeg, Blackbird, and Reinventure. Mm. Uh, but I eventually spent more time talking with Reinventure because I thought the fintech commonality of their portfolio, there was like six companies in the portfolio by the time I joined, um, that fintech commonality and even the fact that they were corporate venture capital, so they were nested, well, had that strong connection to Westpac. Um, mm. Those two factors to me felt like the most fertile ground to build a strong portfolio community. Whereas a lot of the other funds, you know, similar size portfolios perhaps, but, you know, all different sectors or um, industry verticals, even different stage businesses and the common ground in order to build community felt not as strong at the time. I think when you get to scale, um, obviously it makes a huge amount of sense now, but in those early days, I wanted some of those common threads. So, so that was the premise of, um, my role at reinventure and as simon said that was the first role of its kind so i'll always be grateful for danny and simon to have 
seen that same opportunity and they were really community minded themselves. I think, um, you know, in their, their role in building the fintech ecosystem at large in Australia was significant. Um, and I got to play a bit of a role in that as well. Uh, but I think the challenges were still, you know, that setting yourself up for success. I, I almost, I, I went in with the best intentions. I had this kind of three to six month plan of how it would all roll out. And I think that the thing that's difficult about community is that it doesn't work programmatically programmatically like that it really mm. is um a few steps forward some back um you know something is sort of waiting for a long time it feels like it's just sleeping and then it finally catalyzes and becomes really valuable um, we really focused first and foremost on that bridge building between the founders in the reinvention portfolio so typical founders retreats um and the fintech community more broadly uh but it was really difficult to feel successful through that time i have to admit and it wasn't anyone's fault it's just the the nature of these new roles as you say um untested unclear what the goalposts look like um and no one even in the community to really be benchmarking on against um obviously joel started about six months later and then imogen um was the first community person at square peg as well so the three of us um were a little trio for a time which was incredibly useful um, to have that peer support uh but i think we were all feeling generally the same is the truth <laughs> Yeah, no, and I appreciate you sharing that. I want to bring the conversation back to you because one thing you mentioned earlier, which was high in my questions to ask, is you said being first on many things or being ahead of the curve on many things mm. and then spotting the next trend. And that's something mm. Joel said as well. He <clears throat> described you as his high flyer and he said, you're always ahead of the curve with Web3. I think he used Twitter as an example. He said, any page he finds, you're already following <laughs> it and you're already uh, He's in, always in so touch frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> so t- tell me, uh, like, how, how do you... Like, what's your learning routines? Like, are you always reading and listening and meeting people? Like, how do you spot these trends? Give me an example of a trend you spotted before maybe other people and and what's the routine that helps you spot it? Because clearly you spend a lot of time consuming and creating. It doesn't just fall in your lap. Hmm. Um, so my answer to this is a funny one because I just think that intuition has a lot to do with it and it's not Mm. something that's talked about so often in the startup sector uh instinct intuition i call it intuition because we you know everyone does see a huge volume of things um across their desk through their email through their inbox all the time um on twitter obviously it's like a constant stream but some things do just stand out to me and i don't overly engineer it to be a particular way I just I just sometimes end up having these hunches or you'll see the dots connecting in different ways and and potentially I could say that working with Rachel did teach me some um, I guess more automatic things that I probably do now to be able to join those dots or to see thematics emerge to see those trends emerge you know fintech for example um you know, when I was working in the collaborative economy, certainly the fintech um, vertical emerged out of the sharing economy and the collaborative economy. We we were looking at the kind of money vertical where we had peer-to-peer lending, um, crowdfunding was kind of an associated um, trend that was emerging through the latter part or, you know, through 2013, 14, 15. So I saw that emerge out as an even stronger component than any of the other verticals of of collaborative consumption and then parallel um, seeing the VC community um, or seeing the the way venture capital funds thought about their um, 
team development and and how they were thinking about building out those teams you know that was just an instinct or an inkling that I saw emerging which I then combined into you know the opportunity with reinventure um so yeah I I'm not I'm not sort of always out there hunting for the next new thing I guess I'm an early adopter but there are things that align most clearly with my individual interests and passions that I can pick out from noise um, and I and I lean into those things so maybe with web3 even you know I wouldn't say I was even particularly early to web3 as a whole there were people uh, playing around in web3 you know in the nft space or in blockchain technology a lot earlier than than I did but again that blockchain technology emerged through the later part of the sharing economy so there was a thread there that I could pull from um, you know reinventure invested in coinbase even before I started mm. so I had that kind of awareness of the significance there uh, but it wasn't until the you know DAOs in particular and then you know nfts as they emerged later last year um, that I really became quite fascinated with this as the next new trend that could be more significant even than something like the sharing economy um, so yeah the it's it's following gut instinct purely based on what I think is interesting not trying to be a, a forecaster for for everything that's cool ever um, but I I uh, yeah I, I do love to see that signal in the noise and pull out some of those key threads I think I could do a lot more of it to be honest um, you know, as in develop a discipline around it. Uh, but right now it's it's fairly um, casual and opportunistic, I would say. <laughs> I, I like how humble you are, Lauren. You've clearly, <laughs> there's a lot of people have said you've been first in many things. And, and for, uh, maybe the fact that you take it so casually is the secret mm. sauce, is that you don't overanalyze it and it kind yeah. of comes to you. Well, I'll naturally. tell you the other thing. The next thing is moving to Noosa. There you go. There's my bold prediction. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, well, well, that was actually that. <laughs> that was actually one that um, I mean, speaking to Kylie Fraser in the lead up to oh, this, yeah. she she said she's you both known each other for a long time, mm. and she she was actually curious. One of the questions to ask me is, do you think you've you've played a small role in creating a bigger tech hub? in Queensland and Noosa and the Sunshine Coast. I know you'll say no because because that's the kind of <laughs> soul, good soul you are, but that could be one given you brought it up just before. Is that yeah. is that something you've enjoyed playing a role mm. in, as you said, moving to Sydney and then moving out of Sydney back to sort of Queensland in a way? Mm. And and did that change in you if you're sort of mental models around the conversations you were having with people? Mm. Moving up here was an incredible gift to be able to do that, um, you know, mid-pandemic obviously I had Vera in February 2020 and the world fell apart six weeks later and I wasn't coping in Sydney to be quite frank um mm. and then uh combining that with needing to I um, you know obviously moving on from reinventure and and taking a new role um with, with Startmate when Vera was six months old trying to work from my bed in our Bronte apartment and slowly going crazy um so yeah the idea that we could do this and the reason we picked Noosa is basically because we have family uh, you know, in different directions, close close by, which is what we missed um, through the early parts of the pandemic. But I would say what has been so delightful is realising or being able to connect properly with what is going on up here. I think the big change is, I think the ecosystem has existed here. I think what's changed is its legitimacy at a national level um, because people are now more proactively choosing it and choosing to leave bigger city centres, you know, the number of people from Melbourne, Sydney and, and otherwise now locating themselves somewhere in the Sunshine Coast because of what has been made possible with COVID. Um, 
is quite and you, amazing. You, you, you set a trend. You set a trend. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, I think the message is that it's entirely possible to be a contributor to the mm. Australian startup ecosystem from places other way other than Sydney and Melbourne. And I'm proud to fly the flag for that for sure. Mm. Um, getting up some, you know, frequent flyer miles will be the challenge as, as <laughs> things return to normal. Um, you know, and and you know, contributing to um, the the pollution of, of air travel, but um, to be able to dip in and out and and connect with what's going on down there, but also make this a proper thriving ecosystem is yeah a really great opportunity. Mm. I want to, as part of the earlier question about spotting the next trends broadly, is also people like that's something people have mm. said. You're very genuine in terms of the way you build relationships. I mean, even our conversations, I think. You just come with from a good place, and and that's mm. refreshing. Because I think to your point, Delia, there are certain parts parts of the ecosystem that are transactional. It's all about mm. the return you can get on it, and and things like that. How do you like? And also, founders, I think, is the other aspect that people mm. should know is that I'd say ninety percent of the founders have heard your name or have met you, and you played a huge role at Start Made, where you were often that first point of contact, and then they went through the funnel and either got VC funding from other firms or or did the accelerator. Mm. What what is it like? How do you again? It's I know one of those broad questions that that doesn't have a yeah. singular answer. But what do you think people get wrong about building relationships, whether it's with founders for investment or mentoring or just general human connection? Mm. I love that question, and I actually had to answer something similar recently. Um, I think the biggest challenge with relationship building in our industry right now is that short the short-term nature of relationships when they're being first formed you know obviously venture is a long-term relationship game and all VCs will tell you they're there to build these you know 10-year relationships with their founders but in the short term in those early interactions I think everyone is trying to sift through the crowd to figure out who's going to be meaningful to them or not um, and mm. to, to pass the crowd really quickly um, and I would say it's something that I learned in my first job, my, not my Baskin's job, but my, uh, my first real <laughs> office job. Um, it, it's a bit of a funny concept to, to even refer to it's super daggy to even say this, but you know, the eighties were for networking, but, um, this, this premise of something that they used to call net worlding. And it's this idea that you're just trying to build out your own universe. Um, and that people within that broader community of, of who's connected to you may then be relevant to each other. It, it doesn't have to be what's relevant to you all the time. And, and part of the greatest pleasures of, you know, a role like the one at Startmate or being in the community in this capacity is to actually make those connections to different people and not be the, the one in the middle or to not have all roads lead to you. Uh, so I think the, the reason I pull that out is because it was one of the things that made it so hard for me to get a proper foothold in the startup ecosystem myself in the first, um, you know, five years, even more while I was with Rachel and even in the early part of my time at reInventure because I didn't make sense to people that I was meeting or they didn't have an immediate use or need for me. Um, they didn't understand my skill set, whatever it might be. And that's where people really get overlooked. Um, and it takes visionary people or people who have more lateral ways of working and thinking, people like Kate Dinnan who, you know, bring everyone under their wing and, and um, you know, make them feel relevant and special no matter what. That That's where true success lies, I think, in, in building really strong relationships. 
So all the founders that I meet, um, you know, yes, there was the initial thought of, are they right for the accelerator? Um, but there was almost always ways they could be connected in with other parts of our ecosystem or, um, you know, suggestions that could help them along the way, whatever that might be. And likewise, I reflect on the people who I still know now who probably did know me early on in my time in the ecosystem, people like Alfred Lowe, um, you know, we used to work together in a co-working space in 2010. We've had, you know, different careers through that time, but it's the ones that gave you the time and had that connection with you early on that, you know, you, you bump into 12 years later, um, you know, he, he's just one of them, but there's a couple that, you know, are mm. the ones that have been a constant through line through my different careers. And, and I really appreciate those touch points. I guess I just want to be a person like that for, for someone where, um, you know, in a few years time when they've become successful, they, they can turn around and go, Hey, thanks for giving me mm. five minutes at the start. Um, Cause it really helped. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, those are the people that always stand out that believed in you before they believed in themselves. Yes. And and yes. as part of that, Lauren, because you've met so many people and you've built some really good relationships, who are the people that you consider successful, whether it's in VC or it could be in other industries or it could be in other geographies? If you had to pick like a room you could be in, who would be the sort of three other people you'd love to be in that room with that would be like the successful room? Oh, gosh. I wish I'd prepared for this question <laughs> you could define success in as you wish it doesn't have to be titles it could be personality it could be mm. anything and i do realize i'm putting you on the spot so. yeah <laughs> i'm just <laughs> thinking about i mean it would best. be a long list on 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 one hand um who would i i mean i could throw so many names at you i'm trying to either curate carefully or um just i should say the first three off the top of my head um so, I mean, Kylie, we've talked about Kylie a couple of times. Maybe I'll get a two for one in there because Kylie and Rachel together, Kylie uh, Fraser and Rachel Newman at Flying Fox are um, just such role models for me. I think they do incredible things. I think they've struck the right tone um, with, with what they're trying to do and create. I love learning from them. Um, you know, I mentioned Kate Dinan before. Uh, you know, Kate Morris is somebody else who I just think mm. is an incredible figure in the ecosystem. She's focusing on a different part of the ecosystem in that growth stage you know private equity she's such an incredible force and is doing is going to make such an impact um at that level doing what she's doing a younger and up-and-coming person that i'll call out is emily casey um mm. from the what the health uh newsletter i i say her because i liked you know i i can see the trajectory she's on is going to be incredible um i'm mm. really excited to see how she plays plays out her career um and i think that that little room would be quite a fun fun one to be in <laughs> mm-hmm. absolutely i agree with all those names and, and you're right there's so many names so i yes for everyone i didn't mention there's a whole other room full of you and we'll go party as well <laughs> exactly exactly when i was when i was doing my research for this people talked about so many of his strengths and we've touched on a few of them whether it's being an expert very quickly bronte talked about you bought your first nft and you didn't really know much about web3 <laughs> creativity being ahead of the curve um phenomenal parent which 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 i don't want to get into because i feel that's a question that you probably get asked enough how do you look at <laughs> your own kind of self-development journey and like because like you said you're so so many of the things we've spoken about you're good at and you've developed through your journey if you, and you said now you're about to start a new role and, and I will touch on a few things that perhaps are on the horizon how do you look at your growth journey over the next 12 18 months hmm. I think I could have been a really different person if I had focused on 
um, if I'd ha- had more of or uh, leaned more on my perfectionism streak, um, there was probably a potential for me to be even more A-type than I am, um, you know, always wanting to be best in class, um, top of the game, top of the list. Um, and I don't know if I would have been that pleasant a person um, if I'd followed that trajectory. <laughs> I think I would have just yeah. been like a ball of stress. Um, and I think there's been moments in my life where I have been that ball of stress. Um, you know, I gravitate towards people who are really high achievers and let that kind of sweep me up in that way, but that can cause a lot of angst. So I think over time, my self-development has been more around that idea of, um, you know, enough is a bit soft. You know, it's not about being enough, but it's it's being, um, what's the right way to frame it? Good enough at lots of different things. I like to be I like to have a diverse set of skills. I like to be great at what I do. I always throw everything I have into it, but I'm not going to obsess about being the best. Um, and in this industry and ecosystem, there's so much of that talk of, you know, the young and hungry and, you know, you you always want to have somebody who's absolutely focused on the business that they're going to build for the rest of their life. I guess I just see balance being more important than that single-minded determination. I just want to, you know, constantly optimize and improve, but not in a way that, you know, suggests as an unattainable goal. Uh, I'm talking in riddles, but yeah, that that balance feels like more important to me than being the absolute best because I think that comes with sacrifices um, in and of itself. And there's mm. so much to try to keep in balance and you know you mentioned the family thing I think that actually is a really key consideration there's there's so much more value for me in having really strong happy relationships with my children than to be absent and the best at what I want to do in my career you know and people who can strike that balance are really amazing Um, but for me I know what my limits are and um, that's that's where I try to optimize. At the same time I mean I'm a big believer in any gender, we can have it all. And then we talked mm. about our mums earlier and they showed mm. us what leadership from a family point of the early stage looks like. I'd love to talk about more from a educating the audience perspective around that topic of not just diversity of gender, but diversity of ethnicity or diversity of thought. Mm. People people that are creative are diversity of thought compared to traditional, maybe finance um, professionals. Mm. And And one of the things that came up in my discussions is when you look at if we just talk about VC, because we haven't really talked about yeah. VC, is most of the founders are male of, of VC mm. venture capital funds or mm. syndicates or even angels. I mean, you're getting a few mentioned, Rachel and Kylie, Cheryl mm. Mack. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few, some of the entry partners like Jackie and, mm. and um, a few others. What do you think? And I, I ask you this intentionally because I think you, you, you've brought a lot of thought leadership to this space and, and mm. people should hear your thoughts. What do you think's missing in the Australian ecosystem that's going to allow a female to be able to start a fund, whether it's in Web3 mm. or in fintech. Like if there were one or two things, whether it's internal, external or psychological mm. that we could change, would mm. you like to share some things? Okay, I've thought about this a lot <laughs> um, and tried to even understand my own feelings on the matter. Um, you know, would I even go out and try to start a fund? You know, I've certainly thought about it in different ways. Um I think the the biggest challenges right now are that the playbooks to doing this are quite 
um, secretive is not the right word, but they're certainly not well socialized. Um, and I, I don't think there are enough people sponsoring, you know, this idea of sponsoring that next wave of fund managers. Um, it's a bit more of a, um, you know, you come in from the side and, and try to pull things together without actually necessarily getting the support of people inside the ecosystem. So the playbooks and that sponsorship of emerging fund managers from those in the existing roles, I think would go a long way to try to figure out how to start a fund from scratch. I mean, most people might say that that's, you know, the rite of passage you have to go through, but I don't think it needs to be that that difficult. Um, so a few helping hands in that direction, um, either at an ecosystem level or, you know, some individuals who can see the benefit in having that next wave of talent, not just joining existing funds, but actually striking out on their own can be a good thing for the ecosystem. Uh, the reality is that, you know, systemically, uh, you know, women as one group, but of course, you know, when we talk about diversity, as you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant of the broader need for diversity across lots of different areas, but the, um, the generational wealth creating opportunities have to date largely excluded women for lots of different reasons, um, or women have not had that same access, either because, you know, as you said, it was the guys starting the companies and the guys, their friends invested in them. And then the guys who ran the fund, um, you know, like mm. just, and then the LPs of the fund were those friends, um, you know, system systemically, we haven't necessarily had that same access. Um, so the funds that are emerging now with women at the helm um, or, you know, those, as you mentioned, Jackie and Alicia and other people who've uh, become partners, you know, they are certainly doing what they can do from that vantage point. Uh, but we will need more hands being extended to pull people into that ecosystem because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of intimidation on, on one side as to how you can get into that. And then there's just a lot of, misinformation um but you know frankly even my own experience you know casually talking about whether or not that might be something that I would pursue um has been has had mixed results in terms of the reception that I've received uh you know some people who are like yeah of course why wouldn't you and others are like oh but it's hard you know like um you get it's like of course it's hard <laughs> it's supposed to be mm. hard um mm. does that mean I shouldn't can't whatever it else it is um mm. we're more more likely to doubt ourselves as women and we're more likely to need all of the ducks to be in a row and you know it wouldn't hurt to have a few people nudging us in the right direction to to take bigger leaps or to to feel like we can do it safely without cause for embarrassment later on mm. I, f I feel like you're on the path to being one of the big big fund <laughs> managers in the next coming years and i think a lot of people have <laughs> privately mentioned that as well and, and you've alluded to it I wasn't going to mention that but you've alluded mm -hmm. to it that those aspirations are there and I think yeah and I think going back to what we talked about earlier your reputation mm. and your network is just as valuable as a capital because often one leads to the other so mm. um, yeah I think I mean my aspiration is is more you know in some ways the idea of being a fund manager isn't my aspiration but my aspiration is to be able to fully back my own instincts and you know back my decisions to support the founders that I think are doing incredible things. And I think that level of freedom is more akin to, you know, somebody who has a fund, um, you know, obviously angel investors have that freedom within a particular, um, you know, category of, of investment. So that, I think that's really more my aspiration. Um, and I think the industry is becoming increasingly collaborative. So there are lots of different paths mm. as to how you might do that. But for somebody who did want to raise a fund, 
uh, right now. I think that there's some of the, the challenges at play. Mm. I think your point about education is a really interesting one because, I mean, mm-hmm. I through the work I do, and you know a lot about media as well, publicly it's really hard to get the candid answers out of someone about how you started the fund, because they're trying to sell you a narrative because they're conscious of the future fundraise and and all that. Mm -hmm. But I almost, I'm sure you've thought about this, like privately, could there be small groups based on relationships? Or could it be some of the female investors that are showing leadership um, or Mm -hmm. LPs or even founders, right? Like you look at Canva, I know Mel is Mm -hmm. quite private from what I understand, but how can that be the source of capital and not mm. just be male founders? I'm sure that's something you think about and you talk to your friends about. I wonder there's opportunities there privately in small circles. Yeah, I think that is the opportunity and it feels untested. Um, I think that's why it's great watching, you know, what the team at Side Stage Ventures are doing. That's an example, you know, obviously, um, you know, M and Casey is the only woman involved in that, but it's it's still the dynamic that you're talking about. Um, it just needs mm. to play out at a larger scale and, and be even more diverse. Let's get to rapid fire final sprint. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life, non-financial? Non-financial investment. In your life? Uh, in my life. My no- best non-financial investment. Um, yoga. Mm. <laughs> my, yoga um, I, I love- did my, yeah, I did my yoga teacher training in Costa Rica in 2015 and that was still a financial investment in of sorts mm. um, to, to do that but that experience um, was just one that I'll never regret and such an incredible time and incredible practice to to learn to understand. Mm. I, I do yoga once a week and it's been game changing mm. um, yeah. and we I, I was meant to actually ask you as part of that I know you've got a lot of interest outside of work with this dancing mm. or karaoke which we didn't get to but <laughs> karaoke <laughs> Uh, something that came up a bit is that I mean you mentioned Simon I've heard that you and Simon on the dance floor can put on a good dance (laughs) Simon's an incredible musician actually he's a great singer and and guitar player (laughs) yeah is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months great question um I'm always I actually love learning and funnily enough I actually really favor formal study which is not very in vogue but I I Mm. Would have, would have loved to and would love to study philosophy, if I'm honest, uh, at some point and do like proper university study on it, not just casual reading. Um, yeah, I think some of those fundamentals are so much more key to, to understand than the new and the kind of technological uh, advancements we can learn about. Is there one person or quote that inspires you today? Oh, um. It's funny. Uh, we're re-watching and watching the new series of Borgen right now, the, the mm. show about the Danish um, yep. prime minister. Uh, it's it's brilliant. Uh, they they have quotes at the beginning of, of every episode, so there's been some lots of great ones. Um, I think that the one that just strikes out for me is, you know, bad things happen when good people do nothing is the kind of paraphrased mm. version of that quote. I just think people who have levels of privilege in their life um, you know, have a duty to pay that forward through their own actions. And I think that that kind of community-minded, group-focused um, thinking rather than individualistic thinking is something that, that motivates me. I'm doing this for the good of lots of people rather than for my own benefit. Um, and I think that's how we create better society. 
And last one, we didn't talk about Web3 at all, so I have to ask a Web3 <laughs> question. Is there one thing within Web3 that you feel hasn't been unlocked? So I am most excited about the DAO structures, which I've, I've kind of briefly alluded to a few mm. times. Um, so there's one in particular that I am passionate about called Cabin DAO, um, which looks mm. to... Uh, you know, I guess bridge the offline and online. I think that's the big opportunity that they're leaning into and that will um, kind of be where this is successful in a, in a broader sense, um, how those, those two things interact. They're looking to build cabins, real cabins in, in places all around the world um, and have this kind of decentralised community at the helm. Um, that feels like a really juicy topic, but then the the specific insight um, that feels like it's uh, coming through a lot of the web3 chatter is that more technological opportunity of knowing your customer in the in the sense of web3 like basically all these brands they're building um, the most I know about the people that are interacting with them are their eth addresses or their wallet addresses um, and I, I get the sense that that will be the next big innovation to occur where we can get a more full sense of the identity of the person um, you know there's probably marketing, perspectives on that but I think there are you know broader community benefits to really understanding the makeup of your community um, so technology that enables some of that to to come to light feels like it will be something to watch mm, really interesting and really interesting times ahead that's the mm. finish line Lauren thank you so much for joining me this was super fun to do and glad I could share your story and thank excited for, for all the cool things ahead <laughs> thanks so much Vida. it's been great to chat I hope you took away some actual insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your life and continue to be 1% better. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can either share a rating or review on your podcast app or contact me directly by email or any of our social media pages. All links are in the show notes. Talk soon.